Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt, and today we're doing another great theologians podcast. Um, today we're doing it on C.S. Lewis, and so I'm here with Hal Poe. Hal, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Andy. Um, before we get started, do you just want to tell people who you are, what you do, where you're from, that kind of thing? Yes, um, I teach at Union University, where I hold the Charles Colson Chair of Faith and Culture, Hmm. uh, which means I teach all sorts of courses that uh, deal with the intersection of the gospel and Hmm. culture, such as science and religion. Uh, I teach a films course. But uh, C.S. Lewis is one who uh, had keen insight on culture and how the gospel um, addresses the, the deepest spiritual issues. And so I teach a course devoted to Lewis as well. Mm-hmm. So you're the, you're the, the C.S. Lewis expert here. You're going to be giving us all the information, um, which will be exciting. So I guess let's just jump right into it. I, I usually just want to start with kind of where was C.S. Lewis from? Where was he born? You know, that kind of thing. So kind of just give us his, where, where he was born and a little bit of his upbringing. Sure. He was actually an Irishman rather than an Englishman. Okay. He was born in Belfast, mm-hmm. and um, his mother died of cancer when he was nine years old. And mm-hmm. at that point, his father sent him off to boarding school in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a hard time in school because uh, there in the early 1900s, he was born in 1898, mm-hmm. um, the uh, Irish were really looked down upon by the English. And hmm. it wasn't just the, the Catholics that were looked down upon. Anyone from Ireland, whether Protestant or Catholic, were viewed as inferior. And hmm. an Irish accent was just the depths of degradation. So hmm. Lewis had a hard time in school because of his Irishness, hmm. but also because he was poor at sports. He had a, a deformity of, of his thumbs so that they didn't have all the joints. And so hmm. it was difficult for him to. Um, uh, catch a ball, hold a cricket bat, um, do, do all the things you need to do to, to succeed at sports. So he, um, at, at that point, as a child, he, he moved into the world of imagination and books. And so um, in a, to a certain extent, the prejudice against him was the, the fuel that uh, fed his uh, later career. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, ha- had he been good at sports, maybe we would have never had w- what he ended up becoming. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Um, well, okay, so tell us about how Lewis became a Christian. I know this is kind of an interesting story, so I guess you just want to tell us about how that all came to be? Yeah, it's a long story. Um, when he was in school um, in those days, school involved a lot of the study of Latin, and his um, – Latin teacher when he was in uh, what we would call middle school mm-hmm. um, and the and the textbooks it, it explained uh, that the old mythologies of Greece and Rome were just stories that were made up to explain natural phenomenon, but there was no mm-hmm. basis for them. They were just imaginary or fantasy. Mm-hmm. And um, he started thinking, well, the Bible is probably the same thing, just made mm-hmm. up stories um, from long ago. And so he drifted into atheism uh, in, in his middle school years. Um, then 
when what when he was um, sixteen, his father took him out of school and sent him to live with a private tutor, who had been the headmaster of Mister Lewis's school when he was uh, a student. Hmm. Um, w. T. Kirkpatrick was a materialist and an atheist. He had drifted into that position since being headmaster, and Mr. Lewis didn't really realize it at the time. Hmm. Uh, But he gave young Lewis a steady dose of materialist philosophy, Hmm. which gave him um, uh, intellectual grounds to support his atheism. Hmm. But at the same time, um, while he was studying um, philosophy and, and Greek in the mornings with Mr. Kirkpatrick, at night, he was reading uh, the great English literature. Over that period that he lived with him, about two and a half years, he read around 200 books, uh, many of them several times. So books, so the, the novels of Jane Austen and the Bronte sisters and all the great uh, literature going back to uh, Homer. And uh, he came upon one particular story that he loved. He'd fallen in love with Norse mythology. And uh, through Norse mythology, he found the works of William Morris, a 19th century writer who retold the Norse stories. And so Lewis wanted to read anything Morris wrote. Morris wrote a a novel called uh, The Well at the World's End. Hmm. And Lewis fell in love with the plot and he would he would look for this story over and over. It's a familiar plot. It's the person who um, goes on the great quest for the great thing at the end of the world, and you mm-hmm. sacrifice everything to succeed. And along the way, you rescue the damsel in distress. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he discovered that this plot is found all through literature. Uh, he found it in uh, the story of uh, Galahad in search of the, the Holy Grail. Mm. Uh, it's the story of the fairy queen, the last great allegory written, uh, allegorical poem written in English in the um, 17, uh, I mean, the 1590s. Mm. Um, and then he found it in uh, a book written by um, George MacDonald, uh, mm. Fantasies. And uh, this was from a a thoroughly Christian perspective. And so he had this um, this kind of story that um, appealed to him. But the problem with the story is it instilled in him a sense of of values, right and wrong, Hmm. truth, um, uh, self-sacrifice. And he was really gripped by these. And the problem is, in a materialist universe without a God, there is no right and wrong. There's just what is. And so he had this conflict beginning within himself that would take really um, about 12 years to resolve itself. So he was struggling with these issues, philosophical issues, all through the 1920s. And just slowly coming around to the view that there must be some sort of God out there. Otherwise, you can't have right and wrong. Hmm. And uh, he knew there was such a thing as right and wrong. So he stopped being an atheist and finally believed, well, there is some sort of God. Hmm. 
And then um, he'd taken up with some new friends in Oxford who also loved Norse mythology. The, the primary one was um, Ronald Tolkien. And uh, Tolkien was a devout Catholic. And they had all sorts of um, uh, conversations about North mythology um, beginning in 1925. And um, finally, in... Um, uh, after about five years, uh, Lewis and uh, Tolkien were having dinner um, at Magdalen College one night uh, in September. Their friend Hugo Dyson, another uh, literature professor, was, was with them. After supper, they went walking in the grounds of Magdalen, talking about mythology. And Lewis said that... Um, he loved the story of the dying and rising God everywhere he found it, except in the Gospels. And he said that he could accept the idea of a God, but he didn't understand why a God would take on flesh and die. Um, that made no sense to him. In 1925, um, Ronald Tolkien um, went to Oxford as professor of Anglo-Saxon. And uh, he started a club uh, among faculty members to read Old Icelandic together. <laughs> Lewis and, um, and Hugo Dyson became a part of this club. And um, Lewis and Tolkien regularly met together to talk about um, the Norse mythologies. And after about five years... Um, Tolkien and Dyson joined Lewis for dinner one night at Magdalen College in uh, September. Hmm. And um, after dinner, they were walking on the grounds. Uh, Lewis said he accepted the idea of a god, but he couldn't understand why uh, a god would take on flesh and then die, um, hmm. only to be raised again. He didn't see the point of that. And uh, he said he loved the story of the dying and rising God everywhere he found it um, in all the different cultures of the world, except in the Gospels. Hmm. And um, as they walked and talked way into the evening, um, Lewis began to realize uh, in that conversation that um, the only real difference between the uh, mythologies of the dying and rising God and the story of Jesus is that Jesus was the one who really happened. It's uh, the, all the others were once upon a time, but Jesus um, was born when Augustus was Caesar and Quirinius was governor of Syria and he was crucified when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judah and uh, Herod was um Herod Antipas was tetrarch of, of um, Galilee. So it's historical in its root. So he let that mull over in his mind for a few days, and um, he, he um, went to visit the Whipsnade Zoo outside of London with his brother and the rest of his household. Um, the, the others rode in a car, but he rode in the side cart of his brother's motorcycle, <laughs> and he said uh, that when he left Oxford, he did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God, but that when he arrived at the zoo, he did. 
and he didn't know exactly when the change happened. It was sort of like waking up from sleep and you suddenly realize you're awake. Um, so that his conversion really took about um, 12 or 13 years. It was long and drawn out, little steps along the way. Well, and you mentioned J.R.R. Tolkien, and how did C.S. Lewis and Tolkien's relationship progress through the years? Well, they, uh, the, friendship? The, the, uh, the friendship was rooted around Norse mythology. They began mm-hmm. meeting every Monday morning at the Eastgate Hotel. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of people are familiar with the Inklings meeting at the Eaglin Child. The Eastgate Hotel was probably more important than the Eaglin Child. Okay. Um, okay. So... Um, uh, then finally, one Monday morning, uh, Tolkien brought a, a manuscript he'd been working on. And we now know that manuscript is the Silmarillion. And it's hmm. his uh, story of Middle Earth and the, uh, his development of a mythology. And Lewis thought it was the cat's meow. And he encouraged Tolkien to keep working on it. Tolkien began working on it during World War I. He would continue to work on it until he died in 1973, and he never finished it. But his son Christopher took over the editing of it and rounded out a few rough curves and and published it. So it's available. People can read The Silmarillion, which is the the foundational story of um, out of which uh, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings grew. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with those Monday mornings, they kept talking about ideas. Tolkien had an idea for something called Hobbits who lived in the ground, but he didn't know what to do with it. He didn't have a plot. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, Lewis was working on his big academic book, The Allegory of Love. And mm-hmm. The Allegory of Love is really focused on those um, stories that he had fallen in love with as a teenager, uh, especially mm-hmm. the, the quest story and um, the story where you go there and back again. And about the same time, he wrote his spiritual biography, The Pilgrim's Regress, in which mm-hmm. it's his version of this story, because that story of going there and back again is actually the the Christian story. Um mm-hmm. And so it didn't mean the pilgrim's regress didn't mean he returned to atheism. It meant that once he got to the cross, he had to go back into the world that he'd been in and he needed to live out his life as a Christian now. And so this idea of there and back again and and in the journey, you were changed. You're not the same person at the end of the journey you were at the beginning. And so this became the plot for The Hobbit and Bilbo Baggins. Um, goes on this great quest, and um, in the course of the journey, he becomes a different person. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, then they uh, continued to meet. They started an, uh, a writing club that met on in, in the evenings. This was the Inklings. Um, mm-hmm. By World War II, they were meeting regularly on Thursday nights. But mm-hmm. uh, before that, it was catch as catch can. They would meet on mm-hmm. Tuesdays and Fridays and Wednesdays and uh, any time they could get together. But the uh, rigors of the war imposed a schedule on them. Uh, different mm-hmm. ones had blackout duty. And so Thursday mm-hmm. was the free night for them. Um, mm-hmm. 
Well, I was going to ask, I know a lot of people know C.S. Lewis for the Chronicles of Narnia. And so what was the inspiration for the Chronicles of Narnia and how did that whole story come to be? The story came to be uh, because when he was a teenager, 16 years old, living with W.T. Kirkpatrick, um, that first winter he lived uh, in Great Bookham with Kirkpatrick, it was a cold, snowy winter. Now, Lewis loved mm-hmm. the cold, loved the snow, and would mm. go on, you know, 10-mile hikes through the snow up to his knees. He just loved it. But yeah. um, his imagination drew up in his mind uh, an image of a fawn um, walking through the snow with an umbrella and a bunch of packages. And huh. th- there was this vivid image. Lewis... Uh, thought through pictures and um it stayed with him for years and mm. then just before world war ii he thought he would try to make a story out of it um the folks in his house didn't care for it the inklings didn't care for it so he put it on the shelf um mm. then after world war ii um he started working on his own spiritual biography in prose, his testimony. And um, he was reminiscing with his brother, Warney, about their childhood when they were making up stories. And he had a new friend, um, Roger Lancelin Green, who was writing fairy stories. And Lewis decided, well, I'm going to pull that um, phone out and see if I can't do something with him. So uh, about Mm -hmm. 1948, he started working on it again, and he built the world of Narnia around this fawn. And um, when he started, he didn't know about Aslan, and he said that Aslan just came leaping into the story. So he was as surprised as, as um, the Pavinzi children were when Lancelot, I mean, when um, Aslan showed up on the scene. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, so I want to back up a little bit because you talked about World War One, and, and C.S. Lewis was doing something during World War One. He was on the radio. Um, do you want to explain that whole situation and why, why was C.S. Lewis on the radio and what was he doing? Yeah, that's World War Two, or World War Two. Yeah, okay, he was sorry, a, a lieutenant in World War One in the trenches in France. World War Two, uh, he went down to volunteer. They didn't want him. Um, he was he turned. Uh, 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 40 in um, hmm. uh, 1938. So um, he was too old for service. Um, but he was invited by the BBC to give a series of um, radio talks because hmm. the director of the religious broadcasting um, uh, program in um, for the BBC had seen his book, The Problem of Pain, that he wrote Hmm. just the year before. And it was one that, again, he was asked to write it. It wasn't uh, what he did for a living. He was a literature professor for a living. But um, he was asked to contribute a book on that that issue. So the the broadcast talks then were um, uh, his effort to do what he called his war work. It was a sense of duty. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. 
what he talked about was right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe. Hmm. And essentially, he was giving his testimony. Um, it's not in the first person, but it is engaging. He says, now, everybody's got a sense of fair play. And we don't necessarily notice when we've done wrong to somebody else, but we always notice it when someone has done wrong to mm -hmm. us. And so this mm -hmm. sense of right and wrong is deeply instilled in us. But where does it come from? Because we mm -hmm. all do wrong. So it didn't arise from our sense of our own virtue. It had to mm -hmm. come from somewhere else because it critiques our own failure. So this, what, what is, um, what philosophers call the moral law. Um, okay. uh, Lewis was talking about for um, the average person. And so it was so successful. They asked him back for a second series and then a third and then a fourth um, mm. all through the war. They were very successful. And a number of people came to, to, um, to faith through those radio broadcasts. Uh, he edited them in book form. Um, he, the first two series came out as a book. Then the, the uh, third series was a second book, and the fourth series was a third book. In 1952, hmm. he pulled them all together and put a title on them, Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity hmm. is still in print and is um, uh, probably one of the most popular Christian books of the 20th century and um, uh, again has been the the occasion for countless people to become Christians. Um, Chuck Colson, who endowed my chair, uh, became a Christian through reading Mere Christianity. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, I always ask this at, at the end of these podcasts to the people I'm talking to, we, we could talk about C.S. Lewis all day. I mean, he's got he's, he's done so many yeah. things. He has so many books. But um, I'll ask you first, what's your favorite C.S. Lewis book? And what, what would you recommend to people, oh, people to read? It's uh, <laughs> That's a hard question. I, I write about him. I speak about him. I teach about him. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but uh, of, his, of his rational apologetics, I think mere Christianity would, would be the first one. Um, okay. Right. Of his um, Chronicles of Narnia, um, I really love The Magician's Nephew. <laughs> that's the right choice. I, I love The yeah, Magician's Nephew, that's too. the one about the beginning of the world. Um, mm -hmm. And then of his space trilogy, I like that hideous mm. strength. That's the last one. It's set on a college campus. Okay. And, <laughs> you know, Winnie the Pooh loved stories, but mostly he loved stories about himself. So since I'm, I teach at a college campus, I like that hideous thing. I just I haven't read the space trilogy yet, but I think it's the next the next series I'm going to try to mm. read because I didn't even know it existed till a couple of years ago, which is just which is crazy because you always hear about Chronicles yeah, of Narnia yeah. and you don't hear so much about the space trilogy. Yeah, and the um, subtitle for one is a. a a fairy tale for grown-ups. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so final question. What is your favorite C.S. Lewis quote? Mm. Oh. Golly. No, I can't. I can't. I don't have a favorite. <laughs> I bring out the tough questions here at the yeah, end. Yeah, I mean, you, your mind is, is so packed with all these different things that he said. I guess. Well, you want to give us a couple of the, your favorites? To, 
is is one again it 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 gripped me um years ago when I was a much younger professor wrestling with this business of how do you teach from a Christian perspective the integration of hmm. faith and learning mm-hmm. in a in a little um talk he gave um entitled uh Christian apologetics hmm. um he on an aside he said what we need is not more little Christian books, but more little books by Christians on every subject. And hmm. it's the idea that um, that one's faith uh, ought to be a subtext. That is, the, hmm. the assumptions and the, um, the view of the world that Christians have because of a creator God who took on flesh and dwelt among us, that has an impact really on every discipline and every Hmm. part of life. Um, And so that's been sort of a guiding principle in in terms Hmm. of my helping others think about how to teach from a Christian perspective. That's a great one. Yeah. Well, I want to say as we wrap this up, I just want to say thank you for doing this again. I mean, this is fantastic. I think the whole purpose of this is just to give people kind of an insight into some of these great Christian thinkers throughout the years. And obviously, C.S. Lewis is, is one of the great ones. And so thanks for coming on and, and doing this. Well, thank you, Andy. And thank you for your podcast. Yeah. Um, and if you're listening and you enjoy this, make sure you like, subscribe, follow, share this with your friends and go to optivenetwork.com for more. Um, and thanks for listening. We'll see you guys in the next one.